the way in which journalism and the news industry thinks about the business challenges and opportunities ahead is through the lens of their own problems. But the way in which we can create value and convince people to support us in creating that value is by focusing on other people's problems and convincing them that we are, in fact, a response to that. Welcome to Media Voices, everybody. We take a look at all the news and the views from the media world that week. We know that there's a lot going on and there's almost a deluge of news content, so we like to take a bit of a step back and provide some analysis for all those news stories. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Peter Houston. And we're joined by nobody today because Esther is still off. This week I spoke to Rasmus Kleiss Nielsen, who is director at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. We had a great chat about where newspapers are going wrong in their subscription marketing efforts, why there's no easy solution to the need for internal change in newsrooms, and why Nordic countries are outperforming when it comes to membership mentality. But before we get to that, over 100 podcasts have made it to the shortlist for the second annual Publisher Podcast Awards, organised by These guys. (laughs) (laughs) This moi. (laughs) Two what, thumbs who has two thumbs French. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And organised a podcast awards. awards. <laughs> this more. Uh, I mean, it's just been brilliant. The innovation, the resilience this year in the in the audio space has just been, been incredible. Uh, we've got a couple of new categories. My personal favourite is the best coronavirus podcast. Which I'm desperately hoping isn't, isn't still on the bill this time next year. Yeah, that'd be good. Um, but also we've got new new categories for best launch and best commercial strategy so really looking forward to uh winners will be revealed in a virtual celebration and actually one of the benefits of the virtual thing is anyone from anywhere can come along you don't have to get to an actual venue which actually last year was brilliant do you remember that i mean i remember most of it got fuzzy at the end (laughs) Uh, we will be doing print programs and gift boxes for people that want to pay a little bit extra um, and for UK attendees to let them celebrate from the safety of their own socially distanced houses. So the news roundup then. And Peter, can you read out the sentence that you wrote here to re- that really sums up the news this week? Yes. Well, it seems to me there are three things that publishers care about at the moment. Oh. Subscriptions. Mm-hmm. Subscriptions. Oh. And of course, subscription. Ah, okay. Uh, so, what what prompted this? What was the kind of the big headline figure that we saw this week that made that stand out? Uh, What's new in publishing had a, a report on the Q three twenty twenty digital publishers revenue index that Deloitte does with the mm-hmm. AOP. Fifty three percent of digital publishers have witnessed positive revenue growth in Q three last year, and that's driven mainly by a significant increase in subscription revenues. They're talking about, you know, mostly B2C titles, but there's a couple yeah. of B2B titles in there as well. Just having been in the right place at the right time to really step up their subscription stuff as they saw, you know, ad revenue beginning to freeze. At the beginning of last year, would you have bet on half of publishers seeing revenue growth? No, I'm actually. Not sure. Yeah. At the end of the year, I mean. The other thing that was interesting in this report is that Public, the digital publishers that are that they're talking about are not giving up on advertising. They're actually reprioritizing advertising. Mm. 
and that seems to be because they've got this headroom that the subscription revenues bought them. Yeah, it's it's that rising tide floats all boats thing where they yeah. can now invest in actually doing ads properly rather than it being a sort of you know desperate scrap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's just get the MIT out of the way first because they're obviously <laughs> the big power player. Well, yeah, they. I mean, they just what announced seven and a half million paying subscriber people. Yeah, I think we spoke about that briefly last week. Um, but there was a few things this week. We had in the newsletter. Um, they want to convert the morning newsletter readers. It's not the morning newsletter readers. It's readers of the morning <laughs> newsletter, uh, which is like a billion opens. Yeah, that's insane. And they're using that to drive subscriptions. They've got uh, consumer revenue site called the wire cutter yep which they're looking at testing a subscription product on that i'm still i'm not convinced by that one but how come um you really going to pay for reviews uh, people do though you know that there's there are um, yeah, i think about sort of like yeah exactly like and but a lot of that stuff is driven by affiliate revenue right so like yeah. futures growth is driven by affiliate revenues i just it's, I don't know. The two don't sit well with me, so I, I don't know. But that'll be an interesting one. And, you know, we mentioned crosswords and cooking there, but they're, they're also investing way, way more in digital games and puzzles because a third of its 2.3 million new digital-only subscribers have come through those cooking games yeah. and audio apps. The drum did a big thing on this. Yeah, they did, yeah. Ago, didn't they? Uh, I think I mean that's just kind of fascinating to me, and we, I spoke to Erasmus about that. You know, to what extent is that the NYT brand that's driving that, or is that people specifically looking for a quality crosswords, you know, cooking app, and it just so happens to be affiliated with the NYT? But here's the other one, which I think is quite interesting. They're making a play for a subscription-based NYT kids news product. Yeah, and that, I think that it's interesting. I mean, we've seen the success of the Week Junior. Mm-hmm. They're not the only um, so, ones either. They, there's been a couple of places who have launched kid-focused yeah, news sites. Some more newspaper-focused. Well, I can't remember what it's called. Mm. I mean, they've already got kid content. That's such a bad flea. <laughs> <laughs> they've already got... Uh, <laughs> they've already got uh, content focused at young people in the New York Times. So I guess it's just packaging it. Yeah, certainly. I mean, so, I think, like you said, you would not bet against the New York Times. They're obviously looking at this. And I think it's actually become part of the New York Times sort of investment play, you know, yeah. in terms of people, you know, the share price of the New York Times is actually now tied to the subscription. Uh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, but they're not the only ones who are doing well from subscriptions. So this one's good. This one sort of took my fancy a little bit this week. So using AI, the Telegraph, the Daily Telegraph in the UK is boosting its Facebook engagement by 205%, which is then driving subs growth, which to me seems to kind of book this trend, you know, that you can no longer control what audience, what the context that it was, you know, publishing to them was a kind of fool strategy. Well, I think it's still a fool strategy, but yeah, it's better than it. It's better than, than it, to, to be driving subs growth out of the platforms is definitely a great way to go. You and I, without Esther, have a certain view of the Telegraph. I'm trying. I'm seriously. I'm trying not to say anything. I'm like tying my tongue at the moment. Well, but in terms of their content and their coverage and their point of view, they are a very conservative organisation. Yep. But as a publishing outfit, they do a lot of innovation. Yeah, certainly. 
you know, between the, the, the way the podcasts were set up, this kind of thing, using AI. They stuff were. That we've uh, done yeah. with the, around the paywall. Even um, their newsroom setup, to the extent of, you know, showing which articles were driving more subscriptions, which has since been adopted by a lot of other places. They were kind of ahead of the curve on a lot of this. Well, they're saying that partly as a result of this investment in social engagement that they've generated 45% growth in digital subscribers up to August 2020, which are the latest figures available. Um, They also, as this What's New Publishing article points out, they do have a bit of a a foothold in those very high-value verticals around coronavirus reporting and travel-related news, which will inevitably drive much more subscriptions as people want those recommendations. And it's not just the kind of the right-leaning outlets that are doing it as well, because the New Statesman has celebrated a 40-year high for paid-for subscriptions. Um, I know, yeah, we put this in the newsletter during the week, and we linked back to our interview with Jasper Jackson, who at the time was kind of their digital editor, making a big push for subscriptions. And overall traffic to the New Statesman website, which has been paywalled, is around 2 million per month. But at the same time, its paid-for circulation across print and digital stood at just shy of 35,000 as of January, which is the highest level it's reached in 40 years. I wonder how much of this is this kind of niche play. Mm. Uh, you know, because obviously if you're... So what's for the Telegraph, what's for the New Statesman? If you subscribe to the Telegraph, you have a certain point of view and you want your news from that point of view. If you subscribe to your New Statesman, you want your news from a certain point of view and you'll subscribe to your New Statesman. Um... Bloomberg was I can't remember the is it a hundred million dollars Bloomberg is targeting? Yeah, some yeah, it's one of those uh, kind of those for their consumer subscription play. Insane moonshot figures that they occasionally trot out. And but yeah, but they're it's not doable, that yeah. far away from it. Yeah. Uh, but that's very much driven by these niche content areas. These these are the telegraph and the newspaper is slightly different. That's a point of view thing. But it's the same idea that you're going on, you're going narrow on subscriptions, rather than what we you know what we talked about before with the the kind of non-subscription failures. Yeah, these these the Telegraph and 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 the New Statesman and, and Bloomberg. There's nothing mushy about any of that. They're coming from a very specific place. The last kind of technology part of the subscription little subscription roundup we're doing. I don't totally understand, but sounds great. <laughs> deep, deep news AI, um, Frederick Filou's uh, project. Yeah, it used to be to effectively. Sc- it was. Uh, it's a rebranded news quality score index. So the point was, it it was looking at trying to not just combat misinformation, but actually give content, news content, a quality score that you could decide. I suppose, whether it was worth advertising against or whatever. Yeah, the, it was designed to effectively fix what they were talking about as the undifferentiated uh, nature of news content online where there was basically no thought given to how much time had been spent producing it and as a result, everything was valued effectively the same, which then rewarded bad actors for just pumping out clickbait stories. So what's this got to do with subscriptions? Well, they're basically now saying that they're that they have found there is a direct link between the quality of a story and how likely people are to 
convert from it, how likely people are to pick up a subscription on the back of that story. So they're slightly shifting their focus now to demonstrating that you can still apply a news quality score to these stories, but they actually has a benefit for subscriptions as well as advertising. And it's a really, really interesting little roundup of why they believe this and where they're going to go from here. So I, I really recommend checking it out. I think we put it in the newsletter on Friday, but maybe we'll include a link on the website along with it's this like, episode. What? Monday night. Monday note, yeah. It's Monday yeah. note. Nice. Well, subscriptions. There's three important things in the world of publishing <laughs> at the moment, as we said. Subscriptions, subscriptions, and, of course, subscriptions. And in this week's news in brief, the pandemic has boosted the appeal of bookazines, one of the worst portmanteau It really is, English yeah. I was language. just thinking that's awful. I did an interview for the FIP Congress... I was going to say last year, but I'm not sure if it was in 2019. Well, there's, the time oh has just God. become completely unmoored from reality. I have no idea when anything I th- took place I think place it anymore. was 2019. Anyway, at the last FIP Congress in Las Vegas, I did this panel uh, interview. Sorry. Let me do that again. Yeah. At the last FIP Congress in Las Vegas, I did an interview with Larry Hackett, who used to be the editor-in-chief at People magazine. And his whole business, I guess, at the minute is making these kind of bookazine products uh, on behalf of other publishers. And and he was just talking about how powerful these things could be. You Mm. take a lot of archive content, you mix it up with some new content, package it up, make it really beautiful and put a, a, a fairly hefty cover price on it. So I think these things, these are interesting. I mean, even in the craft market, I know you know people that are not publishing on the same schedule are doing these kind of almost like uh, review issues where they take past content and package them up under a theme. Mm. You know, so here's your vacation or staycation content, or here's your Christmas content or whatever it is. And that's interesting that idea of making the most of what you've got. I wonder why the pandemic has been the one that's pushed people to do stuff. Well, I think part of that might be because it's hard work making new content. <laughs> I'm still looking at that <laughs> article. Go on. K-pop. Give me a <laughs> what's, wrong with, what's wrong with K-pop? K-pop because But it actually talk completely proves my point. Yeah. It's people's passions. It's the stuff that people get kind of a little bit unhinged about. Sorry, Peter, you have to get on board with Blackpink and BTS and KDA. There's there's a huge amount of quality music coming out of our career. FML. <laughs> uh, moving on. So Polish media has suspended reporting and it's protesting a planned tax on advertising. Uh, This is a really, really dangerous situation. We'll link to this article alongside the episode because I really recommend people read it. But press suppression is a very, very likely outcome. Uh, It's effectively censorship by taxation. It's it's a really dangerous situation. It's one that we should be keeping an eye on. Uh, The New Yorker is printing a new weekly crossword. We actually predict that, well, there's a bit of a split in the media voices camp with this. (laughs) Well... Chris, what do you think? I think that 99.9% of all publisher revenue, newspapers revenue even, is going to come from crosswords by probably the end of this week. That just seems to be where people are getting their revenue from. I think that's wrong. I think it's going to be about 48.9% 
crosswords and 48.9% cooking. Okay, but what about kid focus news? No, I'm not sure. <laughs> Kids. Uh, Depends how long the lockdowns in the schools are closed. Part, I'm so stupid. Part of me was just like, well, there won't be kids forever. (laughs) 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 And then humanity ended with a whimper, (laughs) not a bang. (laughs) It's just like children and men. And there's been more tests for Twitter this week because it's stuck by its decision to permanently ban Trump. Uh, Maybe one of the last times we'll ever mention him on this podcast, (laughs) despite his quote-unquote, unquote, quote-unquote, quote-unquote, exoneration in the courts. Till he runs in 2024. Oh, yeah, exactly, yeah. And it's also partially defied the Indian government over its attempted clampdown on coverage of the New Delhi farmers' riots, which, uh, by all accounts, are absolutely horrendous. Effectively, Twitter said, we're not clamping down, we're not shutting down journalists' Twitter accounts because we believe in, basically, free speech. And actually, all you walled garden aficionados... It's all about the open web now. Yeah, this one's kind of interesting. This made a lot of waves earlier in the week. I can believe the attention that's got, actually. But WordPress, well, it's a company behind WordPress, and Automatic, yeah. is acquiring Parsley, the not the very friendly lion for those of a certain <laughs> age, but the content, uh, sorry, the the analytics company. Yeah, one of the kind of the the four big analytics companies. Uh, and it's done it with the specific aim of driving uptake of its WordPress VIP platform. Effectively, it's saying, you know, we are defending the open web by giving you the tools necessary to publish to it. Do you know Parsley, the lion? I know Lambert, the sheepish lion. Parsley was in the Herbs, which was a kids' TV program in the 60s and 70s. Oh, wait, was it like a stop-motion thing? Yep. Then, yes. I'm a very friendly line called Parsley. Yeah, I know it to look at. Uh, I've never seen the show. Uh, don't know what you're missing, man. <laughs> you remember the Poddington Peas, though? No. Oh, it's great. Down at the bottom of the garden, <laughs> among the birds and the bees, a little lot of little people, they call the Poddington Peas. It's great. <laughs> Facebook is rumoured to be building a product <laughs> to compete with Clubhouse. <laughs> I, I I signed up for Clubhouse and I just couldn't bring myself to join any rooms. I mean, I guess we should have a look. As podcasters, we should have a look at it. I've had a look at it. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> This week I spoke to Rasmus Kleiss-Nielsen, who's the director of the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at the University of Oxford. We had a good chat about where newspapers are going wrong in subscription marketing, why there's no easy solution to the need for internal change in newsrooms, and why Nordic countries outperform when it comes to the membership mentality. First, though, I asked him about Coca-Cola bottles. To begin with, then, I'd like to ask you about a Twitter thread that you took part in earlier in the week, uh, which also included my Media Voices co-host, Peter Houston, which was talking about what publishers are selling versus what they should be selling. And you illustrated this through the medium of Coke bottles. So what Coke sells is a very easily definable product, and it markets that very well. But publishers don't seem to have the same success in a lot of cases doing that. So what was really the, the impetus for that thread, and you know what spoke to it about you? I mean, I think that whole thread really 
sort of responds in sometimes quite darkly humorous ways <laughs> to, a, I think, a very fundamental feature of how a lot of journalism and a lot of news organizations approach their relationship with the public, who are also citizens, but also consumers. Mm. And it tends to be sort of quite focused on the needs and desires of journalists and news organizations and much less attuned to, you know, what does this look like from the other side of that relationship from the point of view of the public? Um, and essentially, um, the threat is a response to, I think, the fact that sometimes news organizations who want to sell people subscriptions or sign them up as members or donors are quite focused on their own needs and mm. not nearly as focused on the needs and desires and aspirations of the people they're trying to respond to. So the media analyst uh, Thomas Bechdel, uh, you know, did this mock-up of an imaginary hypothetical Coke advert going, buy this bottle of Coca-Cola because we would like more drink people to drink it, um, which is not a very compelling uh, pitch, really, but I think a, a pitch that most people who listen to a podcast like this can sort of think of examples of news organizations that try to sell subscription oh, more God, or less yeah, absolutely. Uh, along those lines. Um, and it then sort of occasioned a number of different versions uh, of, of similar darkly humorous takes, you know, buy this bottle of Coke because we spent a lot of money producing it. That was the or, one that really stuck out to me. Or buy this bottle of Coke because society uh, needs Coke. Mm. Um, and I think the the different sort of takes can be sort of more or less therapeutic and more or less spot on as to what actually existing publishers are doing. But I think what all of them have in common is that they point at a problem, it seems to me, which is that much of sort of the way in which journalism and the news industry thinks about the business challenges and opportunities ahead is through the lens of their own problems. But the way in which we can create value and convince people to support us in creating that value is by focusing on other people's problems and convincing them that we are, in fact, a response to that. Hmm. Now, this doesn't have to be sort of, if you will, strictly utilitarian and transactional. I mean, it's interesting. I think you suggested that Coke has a clearly defined product. I suppose, you know, if that depends a lot on what one means the product is. I mean, Coke is a feeling, it's an identity, it's a sense of something that goes beyond sort of a sugary drink. Mm. And, and I think we can easily think of, of journalism and news media as offering more than the sort of basic utilitarian value of the information that's being provided and also help people see the world in a different way, experience the world in a different way, feel a sense of belonging to a community of other people like them or, or, or unlike them for that matter, who have something in common, for example, identifying with and, and engaging with a particular news provider. Um, but I think it's fair to say that in a lot of the marketing that we see when news organizations who are turning to reader revenues are trying to sell subscriptions and the like, it's very focused on us mm. and not very focused on the public that we aim and claim to serve. And they are the ones we have to convince. You don't need to convince me or journalists that what we do is important or that we want more people to engage with it and even pay for it. You need to people convince the people who aren't doing it. Yeah, it's simple certainly. as that. There was uh, the one that you you mentioned there, which is you know, please buy this bottle of coke because it costs a lot to produce. That seems to me to be the ultimate one that you know speaks to what you're talking about there, where it's it's almost performative for within the company rather than actually appealing to the public about this. Of course, it costs money to produce good journalism, but that in itself isn't a particularly good selling point to a public who don't necessarily see the point of that. I, I mean, yeah. That's um, that's the feature, and I think it, it suggests, if you will, that we risk coming across as a little bit entitled, um, as if we are entitled to other people um, paying our salaries and, and, and our rent, 
and I happen to believe personally that there is um, a very great and very significant public value to some journalism, and even mm -hmm. much journalism, much at the time. But even the argument that you should buy this metaphorical bottle of Coca-Cola because society needs it, even that is quite a weak argument. I mean, societies and people need lots of different things, and most of them they don't get in most of the world. Yeah. So you'll miss us when we're gone. It's not a particularly convincing pitch either. I mean, I, th I think we have to be much more clear-eyed about um, creating value um, and showing that value, demonstrating that value, and communicating that value to people who have a lot of choices. A lot mm. of things compete for their attention. A lot of things compete for the money that they have available. Um, and frankly, at the moment, it's not obvious that journalism comes top of that competition. So to what extent then do you think that that is, that kind of woolly proposition is behind the, uh, I suppose, the success of places like the New York Times, which does have very concrete value exchanges and things like its crosswords and its, you know, cooking verticals as well, which are included in that news bundle? Um, I, I think the core value proposition of the New York Times is the quality of its news reporting um, and uh, the uh, caliber of analysis and opinion that people associate with it and the identity that the paper carries as a prestigious uh, paper of record and, and one that is recognized globally by many as something that you want to engage with even if you don't happen to live on the island of Manhattan or, yeah. or even in the United States. And I think that's what sets the New York Times apart. Um, and we need to be clear that that is a reputation and a reality that most news organizations um, you know, don't match. Um, most news organizations do not have the kind of newsroom the New York Times has, does not have access to the uh, kind of talent around um, analysis and opinion, does not have the reputation um, and the history and the stature and prestige of the New York Times. And we can see already, I think, that it's a limited number of organizations that are competing uh, directly head-to-head -head with the New York Times in that space, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, uh, some uh, British-based uh, upmarket titles as well. Now, the New York Times has been uh, you know, very good at uh, bundling in different ways um, that unique uh, offer with uh, things that are also utilitarian and are tailored to the sort of demographic and user uh, constituency the New York Times is attracting. Um, and that has, I think, helped them acquire more subscribers and, and bind in the ones that they have, retain uh, one, the ones that they have. And in some cases also generating incremental revenues by selling sort of freestanding subscriptions uh, to things that are less directly and necessarily tied to the New York Times news journalism mm. and, and commentary and the like. But it seems to me that the, the, um, the essential part of that whole package is the New York Times and its journalism. The other things can enhance it, both from the point of view of the users and, and as a business. Um, but on their own, it's hard to see that the New York Times could make sort of a full pivot to cooking and crosswords and yeah. ditch the journalism. So the journalism is essential to that business, uh, but it can be en enhanced in, in other ways. So to who else do you look for inspiration around who's doing marketing and subscriptions and memberships really, really well? I mean, I, I think it's worth leaving aside the sort of ultimately sort of half dozen to a dozen large globally oriented English language upmarket publishers who have sort of pretty distinct market and unfair advantages in a way that yeah. aren't really applicable to most news organizations across the globe, 
yeah, please in, leave them behind. In, in English or, or other uh, languages. And in that sense, I would really, I think, focus on um, the demonstrated sort of best-in-class examples of newspapers in smaller markets that have been really, really successful in um, building up large subscriber bases of people who value their journalism and uh, digital-born newer entrants who have done the same, whether around subscription or around membership. I mean, I think the the sort of poster child of the first category of storied news organizations with a long history that are really right now on a roll in terms of building digital subscription bases is Dagens Nyheter in Sweden, mm. um, where a really clear focus on um, doing journalism in news reporting and analysis and opinion that is worth paying for, and then very, very rigorously uh, researching and understanding uh, that value, documenting whether people in fact recognize it, see it, experience it, constantly tweaking where do we put our uh, efforts editorially, where do we invest, how can we improve the, the product side and the user experience side and the, and the tech side of this to make it as frictionless as possible for people to really engage with this journalism and make and, and, and have the best possible experience with it, the confidence to make it available uh, on the basis of an, of an email sign-up and registration for free or heavily discounted because of the belief that the majority of the people who, who agree to give this journalism their attention will come to the conclusion that it's worth more than just their attention, it's also worth their money, has driven very, very significant success at Dagens Nyheter in Sweden, and I think many publishers around the world can really learn from that. They're not alone. I mean, they have advantages uh, in terms of their history and their brand and the ownership of Bonnier Corporation's well-run company. Um, but there are new entrants in, in countries around the world who are doing similar things, uh, whether it's Mediapart in France or El Diario in Spain or Malaysia Kini in Malaysia, organizations who have carved out a very clear and distinct identity uh, that's based on the quality and um, of their journalism and a journalism that doesn't try to be everything for everybody or cover the whole waterfront, but create very clear added value against the backdrop of, let's be frank, largely commodified and generic and highly substitutable, very short-life journalism mm. that is available for free at the point of consumption and has convinced tens of thousands of people to not just honor them with their attention, but to pay them as subscribers or as members because they believe in their journalism, they buy into the mission of it, but also because they they recognize the value that accrue to them as users of it individually um, and, and for the groups that they are part of. And I think this is really encouraging. It takes nothing away from the fact that there is a wider crisis of the business of journalism, but I think it's really encouraging to, to see a growing number of both of legacy titles, but also new entrants that are convincing significant numbers of people to pay for journalism in a world in which basic commodified information is abundant and free and everywhere. And still, even against that backdrop, we're seeing more and more titles succeed. Yes, yeah, certainly. I think that's really interesting in light of the conversations that we've had around particularly local and regional news and the advantages that they have to provide, you know, what's called service journalism or what people are terming service journalism, even though it's hard to delineate that from regular journalism. The idea that you, you demonstrate value to your audience by actually being of use to them in some way. I mean, it's, 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 um, I think it sort of reflects the, um, frankly, entitlement and, and lack of sort of um, uh, clear-eyed realism uh, that has uh, suffused much of the business of news historically. Uh, very stable businesses, high profit margins, 
pretty slow development in a pretty state market, often dominated by a limited number of um, known competitors, um, confronted with the sort of greatest structural transformation in the media environment, at least since the printing press, if not longer. Mm. And to assume that business as usual would cut it in that environment is suicidal, and we are seeing the results of that. And I'm not saying it would have been easy to do things differently, um, but the sort of lack of realism and the lack of will to confront just how much the marketplace has changed and how much we as a consequence need to think about to change what we do and the business that can sustain and sometimes constrain it, I think is quite striking. Um, and you know, there are things that publishers have no control over and there are, there are very real challenges that are exposed externally, whether they are political or the rise of platforms mm-hmm. or advertisers changing preferences. But there are also some that are self-inflicted wounds. Uh, we, we haven't been realistic about the environment that we're in. Um, and we haven't been clear-eyed enough about how do we actually create value for people. And in the light of that, it's not surprising um, that some of the struggles we face are even more severe than they could have been. And we should recognize that some people are doing much, much better and seeing much, much better results. So just before I get into some of the specifics about why those outlets are doing it well are doing it well, do you think there's a growing... Rather, where do you think we are in terms of actually confronting that sort of that lack of self-awareness? Do you think there's a movement towards it now, or is it still people still quite entrenched in their all thinking about the the publishing ecosystem? Um, I mean, I think it becomes harder and harder to sort of cling to the outdated worldview. Um, but I, I do think we sort of need to contend with the fact that there are probably sort of some generational differences here that are not necessarily so much about the analysis, but just about different interests. Mm. Um, let's be clear, this stuff is hot. Um, and, and a lot of the changes that might lead to better business outcomes in the long run are very, very painful in the short run for the mm. organization. They can be quite difficult to sell to owners and investors who may be focused on the next quarter's result and not uh, the results in five years' time or ten years' time. And it's only human if there are some senior editors and executives um, who might think in their hearts of hearts, maybe it'll last my time out. Yeah. Uh, Maybe I can sort of get away with sort of business as usual, um, trim the costs on the legacy print product and sort of business as usual digital wave my hands and talk about AI and blockchain and TikTok from time to time, <laughs> and then someone else got to figure it out. Yeah. Look, I mean, that is an understandable reaction because these are daunting challenges and they are very hot and not everyone who faces them will succeed. Um, but the truth of the matter is that might be true for someone who's 60, that it might last their time out. It might even be true for someone who's late 50s, but it's not true for everybody else. No. And I think we're increasingly clearly seeing that generational sort of um, issue, which is not about age, but about just the reality of people's different situations. And there are many people who are of sick, sort of who are very experienced people in the industry who are really leading the digital transformation. So it's not about age, but there are different interests here, and there is a rare god, um, and there is a vanguard. Um, and I think we need to sort of just recognize that difference of interest, and that there is a conflict here that's not solely about the future of the profession and the industry, but it's also about just people having different positions in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, completely understandable if, uh, I suppose, self-defeating in the long term. And then you, some of the examples you mentioned there, um, historically we've seen you know, some countries, some geographies have a higher proportion of people who have historically been willing to pay for news. How much of that is because of how well the individual news outlets in those countries have marketed themselves? And how much of it is just due to cultural differences? 
I mean, look, I mean, some of the most successful companies in the subscription game are in the Nordic countries, and they have some inimitable advantages that you can't replicate elsewhere. I mean, it's sort of hard to go to a publisher in France or Spain and say, well, if only you had become Protestant 400 years ago and had a, you know, a nation-building project that was highly reliant on mass-based membership organizations who considered newspapers to be an essential part of it, driving very high print subscription rates for most of the 20th century, then you'd be in a better place, right? I don't really see a way in which you know, LPEs or Le Mans can act on that observation. That said, um, there are operational things that every publisher can learn from what some of those companies, Bonnier, Shipstead, JP Politiken, Berlingske Media are doing, everybody can look at, at their operational success and, and think about how that might be applied in their own context. And it's also important, it's not only the people who have unfair, inimitable advantages who are succeeding uh, in this space. Do you have a favorite piece of media that you want to really recommend to the Media Voices audience? I'm a precarious consumer of many different kinds of media, uh, but I've been on the bit of a binge uh, with the Snap Judgment, one of my uh, favorite oh, yeah. podcasts uh, in, in, in recent weeks. I am just full of admiration uh, for the storytelling and the quality of, of work that goes into the what Glenn Washington and his team, what they do, and also just the philosophy of it. Um, I mean, I think Glenn is really a, someone who articulates very clearly what he believes in, and I think you know, he and his team have managed to do something that really stands out from a really, really crowded market with many great things out there. And it's uh, something that I really treasure and value uh, every time I listen to it. Thanks, as always, for listening. Please tell anyone you think might like a weekly media news podcast to listen to, to come on over to Media Voices. And if you like what we do, head over to our Ko-Fi page, ko-fi.com slash media voices, if you want to throw us a couple of quid to cover our operating costs and make us smile. You would make us smile so much. It yeah. is pathetic how happy, I am, how happy I am every time I get that notification. Pathetically grateful. Yeah. And if you are desperate for more Media Voices content beyond that, then do sign up to our daily newsletter. You can do that by going to voices.media. It contains four of the most important media stories of the day as curated by us and a link to our latest episode. And of course, as I mentioned at the top of the show, at the top of the episode, uh, we have the Publisher Podcast Awards in April. You can have a look at publisherpodcastawards.com and get signed up for a ticket, a virtual ticket. But until next week, when we'll be back with a fantastic guest and another tour through all the news and views from the media world for that week, thank you very much for listening and do stay safe. Always stay safe.